Welcome to The Lubber's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. You're with Ian and Mike as we continue our voyage through the Aubrey Matchery novels of Patrick O'Brien. Mike, maybe you can catch us up. Where had we got to last episode? Where do you think we might be traveling to this week? Oh, be delighted to do that, Ian. Well, our heroes were on the way to drop Stephen on Grimsholm Island as part of his mission to convince the Catalan troops to switch sides right. and to keep from getting blown out of the water the way the prior mission to do this had. You know, they're trying to capture the Mini, a Danish merchantman, so Stephen could sail in under the cover of bringing wine and tobacco rather than arriving on a British man of war. Now, time is of the essence. They really want to get Stephen there before the French general arrives to take over Grimsholm and swap out the Catalan troops. The Mini is grounded. She's been taken, but the Ariel's been unable to get her free. There's a blow coming in, and they're about to risk everything as the Ariel and the Humbug combine together, make a final attempt to pull the Mini free or pull her to pieces. So in this episode, hopefully, we're heading for Grimm's home, either with or without the Mini, as Stephen risks yeah. his life to take this strategically vital piece of real estate in the ongoing war against Napoleon. And we're going to meet perhaps the most fleeting of our secondary characters, the gentleman's relish. <laughs> we love the relish. Mike, where we were last time, they were literally in the throes of figuring out what to do about the mini. She was driven at harder ground, having been chased by the aerial. And Stephen, we learn, woke in the morning to the noises of Jack directing the final attempt to free the mini. They've got this whole network of ropes and anchors and windlasses and winches. And between the aerial and the humbug, we're hearing this great exertion. We're not actually there in person. We're hearing all the noises and the stamping and the and the click of the capstan. And then the cry, she stirs. And we hear Jack encouraging, I think that's the right word, encouraging <laughs> the hands at the capstan. And we hear that the mini slides stern first into deep water as half a dozen hands collapse at the bars. Yeah. Ah, so a victory for seamanship. Yes, the mini is off. Now, Stephen, uh, probably glad about that, but he's really worried about this young patient he has that had attempted to escape with the French officers. He's dying, and he's also worried about gathering intelligence on Grimm's home. Um, the captain's mate, the captain, as you'll recall, is dead, but the captain's mate really pretends to know nothing and says that it's his first trip. He doesn't know about Grimm's home. But Stephen knows that he's been on board for a year. So he leaves the captain's mate with Yagiello and heads off for coffee, kind of thinking, I'll let him stew for a little bit. And Jack, in the meantime, when, when Stephen gets to Jack, tells Stephen that they were really within a half hour of having to give up entirely. And it just so happened that a few inches of tide allowed them to float the mini. It was a real close run thing, wasn't it? Yes. And it's great, Mike, that we've we've got something to do for Yagi Yellow, apart from just being charming right. <laughs> and making making everybody laugh and roll their eyes. Um, he steps in and has a conversation with this uh, this mate uh, from the mini, and Stephen's returning to the prisoner and walks in on Yagi Yellow and the mate. Yagi Yellow says, "Looking like a primitive Apollo." who has just made a neat job of Marcias 
can you help us out there with the reference, Mike? What's going on with um, Apollo and Marcias? Well, we, you know, we, we've got some famous uh, Greek mythology and some paintings where Marcius gets skinned alive. He's flayed by uh, by mm. time, and this Apollo is is taking him apart. And here, you know, we've got Stephen looking at the prisoner, who's you know kind of yellow, you know, shaking a yeah. bit, and looking at Yagiello, who looks just quite pleased with himself <laughs> to report what he's found out. <laughs> So if this mate's been, in, in interrogation terms, flayed, presumably means that lots of things have been laid bare. So we discovered that the mate didn't know who these French officers were. So we still don't know at this moment whether um, the general, General Messier, was among them. But they had, we know there had been a boat that put off from the mini that got shot to pieces by the aerial. Only the captain, he says, would know if they were putting into Grimm's home on the way to their destination. And he gives some great intelligence. This is the stuff that Jack is going to lap up. The private signal last time the uh, Mini had been into Grimm's home was a Hamburg Jack upside down on the foremast. But he says that might have changed. So we've got the idea of a recent or only slightly out-of-date private signal. And he gives some directions that says when they go there, they are to land at the third little island near the shore and present their papers. When they have been ashore, they've spoken only to the French They've never gone ashore, so they can't speak about the the condition or the leadership or the organization of the soldiers that might be there. And thankfully, the prisoner draws a map, and Stephen tells Yagiello that they might have obtained better information by offering a gold piece. I think he's uh, he's teasing Yagiello a bit about just just what lengths he's gone to to be charming. <laughs> right, and and Stephen, from personal experience, is not a big fan of torture. <laughs> no, he's not. <laughs> now Stephen tells Jack what he's learned. And we get another classical reference here, Mike. He suggests that they follow the example of Artemisia, Queen of Kos. And Mike, that was, this sounds like Jack Aubrey, but in classical times, right? What was going on with Artemisia? Well, she, on the side of the Persians, is fighting the Greeks. And the Greeks are coming at her, and she realizes that there's no escape. So they see her, and as they spot her, she turns and attacks a Persian ship. And the Greeks are now convinced that she's an ally and allow her to escape as they go after the rest of the Persians. So Stephen's saying, look, we could take this tactic and we could go into Grimm's home on the mini flying as the aerial is pursuing her. And if the aerial's firing at her, she's running to get out of harm's way. You know, maybe they overlook the fact that we've got last time's private signal showing. Oh. And and he wants it to be as authentic as it can possibly be. You know, have all the crew change clothes, you know, act completely like the minis merchant men, sailors, not like men warsmen. Um, and Stephen has been plying his gold pieces to get some of the minis crew <laughs> to, in fact, be in league with him and to help with this effort and the deception. Indeed. And even though it comes from Stephen, this idea is a classic Jack Aubrey naval ruse, isn't it? We've got the the, the lame duck and the the false flag ruses okay. all together in one maneuver. But this time, the, the chaser and the chased, the aerial and the mini are both going to be in on the act. Really nice. There's kind of one fly in the ointment, although it's not a fly, it's it's mm. lice. And these guys are thinking about changing uniforms. 
And, and Jack's crew members are saying, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, we've taken years to grow these beautiful long pigtails. If we put on the Dane's clothes, we're going to get a lice and people are going to have to cut off, you know, shave our heads. We you don't know, want to do this. But Jack, having learned from Stephen, convinces them that there's only body lice in the clothes, not head lice. Yep. And he uses Stephen's Latin, which, you know, wins them over, says they're safe if they don't put on the caps. And furthermore, he assures them that if they go aboard the Mini, He's not going to let any of the minis crew that's going to stay on the aerial sleep in their hammocks while they're gone. Yeah, and he promises some pay as well. He says, this counts as hard lying, and uh, therefore you get an extra whatever it is. Exactly, right. An extra extra few shillings. And Jack's starting to assemble the pieces now that we've got this plan emerging. He tells Hyde that he's sending in Wittgenstein. Wittgenstein is a midshipman. In this case, because... If there were any commissioned officers aboard, they would be hanged if they were captured. And he's also, I think, worried that Hyde isn't great at remembering left from right. Right. (laughs) And we've talked, he's a little bit, you might say these days, he's a little bit dyspraxic maybe. And he prefers Wittgenstein's seamanship and also lack of officer status. And like we've had on other occasions, Hyde is clearly not happy with this prospect. He sees that this is perhaps a really rare opportunity for him to distinguish himself. But Jack says, or Jack thinks, Stephen's life is on the line here. I'm going to make the choices about who commands the uh, the ship that takes him in, and that's going to be the end of the conversation. But meanwhile, Mike, let's just put a pin in this idea of Hyde and struggling to confuse left from right, because maybe, just maybe O'Brien is planting something for us there. It might be... We might think about what else could go wrong if it's a if a watchkeeping officer ever can't tell left from right. Right. Well, we'll he's see. certainly brought it up several times now. So clearly he's trying to make sure we're prepared for something. Yes. Uh, it's, it's a Chekhov's gun, perhaps. It has to go off by the third act. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, Jack calls the crew of the Mini together. And as you said, Ian, he's really worried about his dear friend Stephen here. So he outlines the plan tells them none of them are talking, only Stephen does the talking, you know, and he's he's happy that they understand completely what he said, as they make clear as he starts to repeat himself for the third time. <laughs> and, you know, by the time they're on the ship, he's kind of amazed because immediately upon boarding the Mini, they're just completely looking and acting like a crew of Merchant Danes, not at all like, you know, Royal Navy seamen. And Almost immediately as they've boarded the Mini, they spot the sails of the transport ship of the escorting man of war, Aeolus. And and Jack starts to worry a little bit that having all of them here, he says, is damnably like counting your chickens. I hope to God it may not bring ill luck. Amen. We'll, we'll take that. And there's this very disturbing last meal. Not one. Not last meal in the sense of last meal. There's this very disturbing meal between Stephen and Jack. Stephen asks Jack, can we dine early before the chase begins? And we've got this odd reversal. So normally it's Jack who likes to eat hearty before he goes into action. Jack's stomach, it says, is closed, but Stephen is the one who manages to enjoy his meal. And it then goes on and says the feast was no feast. The atmosphere was entirely wrong. They were polite to one another. There was almost no real contact. It was as though Stephen were already gone, removed to another plane. Ouch. And they don't even get to play music. They were just beginning to talk about how on similar occasions in the past they might have played violin and cello duets when a midshipman comes in to say, 
Master's Duty and the Grimm's Home was sighted from the masthead. And there's this odd sense of dislocation. They've got their roles reversed. They feel a little bit out of place. And Mike, this is all capped, I think, by this horrible omen or apparent omen. Jack toasts Stephen and says, here's my dear love to you, Stephen. And he drops the glass and it breaks. Yeah. Yeah. This this is not good. Jack is is appalled. And, and Stephen, right back to business, stoic Stephen. Yeah. Don't you mind? Just look for my signal, <laughs> a Catalan flag. And Jack, of course, has no idea what that is. And Stephen describes it, a yellow with four bloody stripes running down. Like still, we're like, it's, it just seems a little ominous to me here. But he says, you know, if you see it come at once, flying the same flag in a place of honorable distinction, salute the fortress with all guns proper and receive the commanding officer like you would a nobleman. And I love Jack, who's now so worried, having mm. you know, dropped this toast. He said, if he comes with you, Stephen, he shall have a royal salute. Wow. And then we do get a bit of music, but significantly, it's only Stephen who gets to take part in the music reference. And my, I, I don't know if there's something going on here that all of this dislocation of people's roles is, in a way, Jack is kind of being punished for his misconduct with Miss Smith and his misconduct towards Sophie. And Jack isn't really allowed to take his proper place, at least not yet. And so the musical connection is in Stephen's mind as he's aboard the mini heading in towards Grimm's home. It says he whistled the Montserrat Salve Regina, embroidering the theme, it says. And this is a great musical reference. I I love that. It's obviously correctly attributed. So well done, Patrick O'Brien. We'll tweet out and we'll put out on Facebook a, a clip of this piece, the Salve Regina. It's a prayer to the Virgin Mary sung particularly in this particular version by the choir school at Montserrat, which is still there, and they still sing the same setting of the uh, um, of the Holy Mary prayer. For me, it's got all of these boxes ticked, as well as being correctly attributed. It's got character and backstory significance for Stephen. It's at exactly the right moment. If we look into the words of the Salve Regina prayer, it's a prayer about mourning and weeping in this valley of tears and appealing for for succor, if you like, from, uh, from the Virgin Mary. And then later on, as lots of Marian prayers do, it mentions, after this, our exile Show unto us the blessed fruit of thy womb, Jesus. And Mike, this is, I, I hope I'm not blaspheming to hurt anybody's feelings here. This is perhaps a reference to a more earthly womb <laughs> and the womb of Diana. Well, you know, it's funny because omens keep coming up. Wombs and pregnancy keep coming up. This left and right keeps coming up. And if I can do just a personal digression here. Yeah. I, I was really stunned when I read this Stephen Whistling because I, I I couldn't almost in a way conceive of it, but 
when I was younger, much, 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 much younger, I always said that if I ever wrote a novel, the first line would be, he looked like a guy who whistled Gregorian chants. Not that he whistled <gasps> Gregorian chants. He just looked like a guy who would. Little wow. I know that, you know, 40, 50 years later, I would meet him. It's our particular friend, Dr. Stephen Matron. Oh, Mike, that's that's your imagination playing some long ball with you there, my friend. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Oh. There you go. We all we all come under the face of Earth. The Earth has already fully formed Patrick O'Brien fans. <laughs> there you go. I think that's so true. Well, you know, we, we've had this moment. Stephen's whistling. You know, Jack's concern here. The you know the fact that they didn't even get to play music, and it was their one chance to kind of connect. It looked like when they were brightening back up with each other, but cut short by the midshipman, and Jack follows the mini and he's doing everything that he knows how to do to look like he's chasing with great eagerness without gaining much. He's he's firing. He drops a sail in as a drogue to slow them down off the side where the fort can't see. Um, and he even orders that the main royal be hoisted. And, and Lieutenant Hyde says, whoa, whoa, that mast is sprung. Mm. And Jack assures him, yeah, that's exactly what he has in mind. So they're flying in behind the mini. They're firing away mass sail and yard carry away as Grimm's home comes nearer. And they see the smoke wafting from their hot shot furnace. Um, they're getting in this great chase going, but a little concerned because the mini seems to pass within the range of the battery and that's yeah. all good. But then the aerial does and nothing happens. And then shots began being fired and they're dropping way beyond behind the aerial and they realize they've caught them. They've caught yeah. them both here. Um, and they're turning to run. You know, they get one shot fired off at the fort and in trying to do so, they accidentally pierce the mini's mizzen topsail. So they're trying to escape. They've injured the mini and they're trying to run here. Oh. And it's really intense writing. We've we've talked before, Mike, about how this book has had quite a, a gentle pace and not very much tension and not much anxiety. But I was really gripped as I was turning the pages here. Um, and also gripped by the fact that we start off following the action from Jack's point of view. And he's seeing all this from a distance and he's got all this uncertainty. At the same time as he's taking fire from the shore batteries, it's still not clear from Jack's perspective, what's gone on with the Mini and what has befallen Stephen. He sees through his telescope that um, the Mini sails in undisturbed. It anchors and it sends off a boat. Stephen came to a jetty full of men and Jack can just about see through the telescope that this crowd of men dissolved when Stephen landed, but he couldn't tell what it meant. Right. And I, I, I love the tension of this. I love this trick that O'Brien plays of making things more tense sometimes by having us step away from the action so that we really can't yet see what's going on. Uh, but then he gets to flip the point of view. And it's a very cinematic trick, I think, to very quickly change from way out at sea aboard Jack um, to be inshore and onshore with Stephen. And Stephen's boat's on the way in. And Mike, there was a, there's a moment when I started to think, well, maybe it could work. Maybe it could work. That's when they... Uh, they they hail the boat that's carrying Stephen in, and they say, "Have you brought any tobacco?" And it right. says the, Dan the Danish cook's reply <laughs> brought a roar of satisfaction. Yeah, and and you think, okay, this is going to be good. And Stephen looks up, and there's a whole row of armed men 
waiting for him, looking intensely at the boat. And, you know, you think about Jack's dismay at the childish omen. You think about his patient's death that morning. And and all of a sudden, again, I'm sort of sucked back into these premonitions of disaster. And Stephen's doing the same thing. He's seeing them as premonitions of disaster. And all of a sudden, Stephen starts thinking about how actually, no, he really is attached to life. And he's looking around at the sea, at the light. He's thinking about an eagle sailing on the wind. And and I'm like, oh my gosh, this this is grabbing me here. Yeah, it's it's really intense. And all of a sudden, we see now that we're with Stephen's point of view, the armed men on the jetty turned and left. There had been an honor guard, which I presume was there in the expectation of General Mercier arriving. Right. But there were no French officers to honor. They, they couldn't honor a civilian, and Stephen's clearly a civilian because he's not in uniform. So he then does the other thing that absolutely signals who and what he is, Mike, which is he uh, leapt from the boat and fell between the jetty and the boat. And he gave himself away right there and then by yelling in Catalan, ah, pull me out, hell and death. The sergeant, the Catalan sergeant, asks amazed, art a Catalan? Mother of God, of course I am, said Stephen. Pull me out. And coming out, he says, now tell me, where is Colonel de la Strette? And the crowd parted, pointing. And Stephen cried, Padre. And Olastrette shouts, Esteve. And they ran together and embraced. Nice. Oh. <laughs> you know, we're, we're getting the emotional payoff here. It's like this one of these fabulous moments. But Jack, sadly, is not because he really can't tell what's happening here. Right. No, he's he's just seen the movement in the group ashore and he can't tell whether Stephen's been greeted or arrested, whether there's a, a fight going on and the whole group moves off together and he's seeing yet no flag flying from the fort to suggest that Stephen's been successful. So he has to wait, biting his fingernails, I guess. It says he spent most of the night watching from the main top, soaked in dew. And in the dawn, he saw that the mini had been emptied, still no flag on the flagpole. And finally, Mike, it says, he heard two bells and a group of men gathered under the flagpole raised a yellow flag with those four bloody stripes. And Patrick O'Brien says, joy filled his thumping heart and he fixed it while he might have counted 10. He's talking about fixing it in the telescope to make certain, doubly sure. And as he looked, he saw the little group of men throw up their hats, join hands and dance in a ring. He thought he made out cheering from the shore. And this dancing in a ring thing is a Catalan yes. you know, dan- dance move, unmistakably. Then leaning over the rim, he called, Mr. Grimmond, take her into the bay. And then, Mike, how does he get down from up there? Oh, O'Brien writes, and I love this. He was so stiff that he went down through the lubber's hole, chuckling to himself as he did so. So Jack now has delighted. He's seen the flag come aboard. He's ordered them into the bay. He has all the transport carriers, the ones that are going to bring the Catalan troops home, come in. Everybody's raised Catalan flags, and he asks Lieutenant Hyde to prepare the ship to receive a nobleman. And they sail in. As they get closer to the batteries, the men are nervous. They remember the last time they were here. It was hot shot all around them. And far into the bay, Ariel gives its 21-gun salute right between the two deadly flanking batteries. And then the batteries opened up. 
O'Brien writes, the Ariel trembled. All her people stood motionless, stunned, amazed, deafened until the last echoes rolled away. And they slowly realized that this was the returning of their salute. You know, this is fascinating to me, Ian. We've got this great welcome on Grimm's Home. This has been kind of the tension we've been building up to what's going to happen here. And just as soon as it starts, it's ended. And I'm I'm sitting here finishing this going, well, has has the book now started or has the book now ended? We've got all (laughs) all these questions about Stephen and Diana, Jack and Kimber, the the surgeon's mate, you know, and Yagiello, what's he doing here? And and still, you know, with the exception of the Medusa, no real action to speak of, even with Jack into command. Um, and not really to me, you know, a whole lot closer to knowing what this wonderful tale is all about. And maybe, as we've said before about this book, this is O'Brien flexing his writing muscles a little bit. He's confident enough that he can stretch or even completely disregard the rules of narrative structure. He knows that the readers are going to be with him and that he can put in these episodes and these twists and turns without ever really tipping very much of his hand about what it means for the story and 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 with, without a complete resolution for very many of the characters. Because even for Stephen, um, we've still got Colonel Dulastret aboard ship and they've got to get him back to Santander. Um, we've still got all the unresolved personal stuff for Stephen with Diana, who's in Paris. So it's not like... Very many loose ends have been tied off at this point. But yeah. as you say, we've got this nice milestone that they've managed to take Grimm's home and so far pay tribute to the fragile honour of the Catalan troops and their colonel. Yes. And I do love, as you say, that it's fabulous reading. Love reading it. And, you know, it's such a contrast. You know, I, I, I go to a movie. Well, I, I remember having gone to a movie <laughs> And it's just like one action scene, stitched to the next, stitched to the next, stitched to the next. And this yeah. is, as you say, you know, it really speaks to O'Brien's chops as a writer, that he can yeah. bring us along with all of this, clearly not knowing where he's going, but loving the entire journey. That's a really good way to put it. And I want to just think about Jack for a second, because he was in the situation of having a thoroughly blotted copybook in the early part of the book. Right. And he's still not great, as we said before. He's still not rightly in his place, but he has pulled off this great feat of seamanship and he's brought his friend Stephen to the point of being able to pull off this great feat of diplomacy. And we know that one of the things that's important to Jack is the, the praise and esteem, uh, the received honor, if you like, that he gets from his naval colleagues. Right. And he goes back with the transports to see the Admiral, see Admiral Somarez. And we know that when the Ariel had left with all of the tobacco and wine <laughs> aboard. Um, everybody was anxious, and Somares himself was a bit careworn. But now they return to this much younger, much jollier version of Admiral Somares, who's been preparing a hero's welcome ever since he'd received word that the mission had been a success. Yeah, yeah, it's neat. And, and Jack, to his credit, like you say, you know, Jack often was about the glory or the prizes. And this time... He's all about his friend. I mean, he wants to get the mission, but he really is so in, intent on saving Stephen, getting Stephen in and out successfully and safely. And he's exhausted. He's absolutely knackered, uh, p- 
particularly about his worry over Stephen and having to yeah. deal with the colonel who spoke no English, only French. Jack, we know, has not got very good French at all, barely better than his Latin, I guess. And, you know, Jack has to listen to him for hours on end and he tries to mumble things that, you know, would, would sort of do in the rare pauses. And he ends up saying things like, holy name of the dog, or look at me, or blue belly. So, uh, you know, Jack's tired, he's worried, and he realizes, too, uh, both the colonel and the admiral love ship-shape, shining uniforms. That is a real degree of military work. And his is an absolute shambles. So he's coming into the harbor here. And I think he's very willing to take offense if he suspects that anybody's looking askance at his shoddy boots or the uh, the discolored trim on his uniform. But the expression changes because Summers has got the fix in. The Admiral's delighted to see them back and expresses that in terms of a salute meant for an Admiral. So well done, Summers. Yes. And that expresses confidence to Jack, who in turn gets the chance to give Stephen credit for the success. And guess what, Mike? They're all going to have a dinner. A dinner. And and I love it. You know, the the Admiral has really been prepping this thing and he has it completely laid out. Unfortunately, he has it laid out for something that an Englishman would be absolutely delighted with, not counting on the fact that he's got a Catalan papist in the colonel here. So, uh, you know, O'Brien tells us that despite the strange and prohibited dishes, you know, the colonel enjoys his bread and wine and occasional green untainted by flesh. And they they launch into this great conversation where Thornton, uh, the admiral's political advisor, talks about how anxious they were waiting for the news, especially when they learned that the French general had been on the mini bound for Grimsholm. Ah, there we go. So it turns out that Mercier had been aboard the Mini. It turns out that Mercier was one of the officers that died when the uh, escaping boat was shot to pieces. Ah, so that little bit of extra jeopardy for Stephen, it turns out, um, had been a little bit less. So because Mercier had been taken out of the picture before they'd even got to Grimshaw. But nonetheless, it was a great stroke. And it's a classic example, I think, Mike, of us learning something important about the action through reported speech, you know, half a chapter later. Right. And 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 kind of a look back, too, on Jack's sort of split-second decision of do I get the cat or do I get the mini? You know, we yes. talked about last episode, and Jack says, you know, I'm going for the mini. And wow, could have been a very different ending otherwise. Yeah, another little bit of partial rehabilitation for Jack. That's great. Right. And there's even this very polite, mutually esteeming conversation between Jack and the Admiral. So first, Jack talks about, you know, Thornton talks about anxiety. Jack talks about a ship's captain's anxiety. Uh, And then the Admiral talks about that, but acknowledges Jack, right? Yeah. So there's this very nice little mutual esteem going between two people who need not have esteemed each other, you know, somewhere as the the, the taught evangelical and Jack, the, the... bawdy, rather licentious person. Again, a little tiny bit of rehabilitation for Jack. Yeah. And and he's back in the bosom of the Navy as well, Mike. And this this dinner scene is very bucolic. They're all together. It's a very easygoing kind of family atmosphere. It says a general atmosphere of holiday and relaxation and cheerfulness. And in our interview a few episodes ago with Gord Lucker, who's a 
former Navy serviceman, that's that's a feature of how the Navy runs its dinners. Um, when you're at sea together, sitting down for a mess dinner is a is a chance to unwind. Right, and, right, and there's and there's respect and there's admiration, but not necessarily um, deference. <laughs> yeah, we you know we we heard about those dinners where the captain's present or the admiral's present, and you never speak unless spoken to. But they really yeah. get into it here. All that is it the captains who have the greater burden? Is it the admirals who have the cap- the greater burden? I love this. Yeah, and then they get into prize money, and you get some passionate dissent from the uh, officers around the table, there's no prize money there, Moni. No prize money in the Baltics. There's this new regulation that takes a further eighth from the captain, reducing captains in the eyes of Aubrey to abject poverty. And the Admiral makes the every, every employer's favourite point about intangible benefits. He says, there's still glory to be picked up in the Baltic. And anyway, he says, who cares for filthy lucre? And... <laughs> nobody comes back to him with a rejoinder, but you can tell, I think, as you look around the table that everybody's looking a little bit like they don't really buy it. And one voice, one voice, Mike, comes up with this great Latin tag, non olet, which means money doesn't stink. Right. <laughs> and I, I, you know, actually, that's a Latin saying. I think I could, t- I could, uh, you know, adopt. I like that. Money yeah. doesn't stink. So not only have we got the easygoing banter about prize money we finally get some singing as well and somarez again in his, his genial president of the mess role calls on the flag lieutenant he says tipper's heart of oak and my heart of oak that's the the navy's fight song that's the song that they're all going to sing anytime they're together Um, it's still the Royal Navy's fight song, really. And do you know what? If you get onto patreon.com forward slash lovers hole, we promise we'll never sing it on the podcast. Right. That's right. There's a payoff. Anyway, it may well be that you're all now in fine voice and that you'd really like to go off and sing a little song. So, Mike, why don't you and I pop into the cloister and uh, and warm up <laughs> while everybody else has a little hum to themselves and we'll be right back after this short break. We're glad to have you all aboard and would love your support at patreon.com forward slash lover's hole. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash lover's hole. Help us defray some of the expenses of making the lover's hole and join us for some additional content. Welcome back to the lover's hole. And welcome back to the dinner, because as they've been singing Heart of Oak, the colonel, Colonel Illustrate, has some questions about what they're singing about. And they tell the colonel that they're singing about glory. And this is a subject that's dear to the colonel's heart. He offers to sing a song in turn about Lord Peterborough, or as he says, Lord Peter Booger, um, and his grandfather when they took Barcelona together. So we have this final payoff of the dinner, Mike, with the British and the Catalans exchanging dance moves on the troop carriers, and everybody's having a good time. Yes, they are. They are. And and O'Brien can't help but give us one one other little ding here. You know, when the colonel 
says you know about singing about glory he says it's much more suitable than whining about some woman but <laughs> let's put that to one side and everybody the catalans the brits everybody's happy together everybody's happy until jack tells stephen that they are to set off at once and stephen is incensed and says he can't believe that they're setting off on a friday a friday mm. and jack tells him he, Jack, no longer believes in omens, not after what happened on Grimm's home. And we keep Jack home. Aubrey no longer believes in omens. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah, a seaman. Omen-free seaman. I don't think so. <laughs> no, 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 no. But he's, he clearly wants to make a point. <laughs> right. And he's trying to, to, uh, trying to get one over on Stephen. And this is the eternal argument that they have, of course. And this is a, a classic Jack and Stephen moment. Jack says there's not a moment to be lost, and Stephen says, well, what, really? Right. That's- Anyhow, <laughs> the aerial sails, they join the convoy during the night, and we're still here off the southern coast of Sweden, and they're together in company with the convoy next morning in the fog. And we get this beautiful scene initiated by Stephen. Stephen calls down from the fog in the rigging, inviting Jack to come up and to see a most remarkable sight. Jack's upset that Lieutenant Fenton had let Stephen go up and it was doubly upset when he learns that the ham-fisted lover Yagiello is with him. And Stephen's really, really keen. He says, Jack, it's a, it's a hapax or a hapax phenomenon. And Mike, I think that means something that happens only once, once in a lifetime. So what is it that they're going to see when they get up there? You know, Jack climbs on up and finds him way up out on the top gallant yard. And Stephen points and asks, are you not amazed? And O'Brien, we get another one of these beautiful cinematic moments. He says, you know, at this height, they were above the low blanket of fog that covered the sea, clear sky above, no water below, no deck even, but a smooth layer of whiteness, sharply cut off from the clean air and ahead on the starboard bow and on the starboard beam, the surface of the soft, opaque whiteness was pierced by an infinity of masts all striking up from this unearthly ground into a sky without a cloud, a sky that might have belonged to an entirely different world. Oh, it's it's very beautiful, and it's very poetically described. Yes. And he, he paints the picture so well that we're up there at the uh, at the cross trees with Yagiello and with Stephen and with Jack. And there's going to be a little bit of interchange here because Jack says, well, I'm amazed... And I'm kind of gratified, but I'd really like you to get to be somewhere safer. Um, He hollering down below going, belay everything that belongs to the main top gallant. Because basically, Stephen and Yagiello are grabbing onto ropes that are just going (laughs) to offer them no support at all. Stephen even takes a big leap. I think Stephen's got a little bit of uh, hubris going on here. He's pretty sure now that he's uh, got a touch of the immortal about him after his great stroke on uh, on Grimm's home. And Stephen and Yagiello are not at all nervous. Have you ever beheld such a height, says Stephen. (sighs) Jack is going to undercut it. He says, not above a few hundred times. We call it the day blink. But I am very grateful for having been called aloft before breakfast to see it again. (laughs) Oh, get him, Jack. Get him, Jack. Yeah, burn. I'm pretty sure Stephen felt the burn. But I have a feeling that sarcasm is going to bounce off Yagiello. I think he's excited no matter what. I think you're exactly right. 
Well, Jack tries to talk them both into safer positions. He's fussing at Stephen and Young Yellow. His attention is divided between the two of them. Neither one of them is following his instructions. And all of a sudden, Stephen starts to drop abruptly from the yard. Jack luckily catches him, pulls him back in, and Stephen's shoe tumbles all the way down and smacks on the deck. Uh, And this is... This is that scene I remember Ava Sanders had, had read part of it where, you know, Yagiello won't leave the Beckett alone, that that loop of rope for securing items. And, and Jack is after him, after him, after him uh, time and again while trying to talk to Stephen. <laughs> Stephen says, the fact of the matter is that Mr. Yagiello is in an embarrassing position, which is true in very many levels. And Jack replies, he'll be in kingdom come if he don't leave go of that Beckett. <laughs> and we discover a bit more about the embarrassing position. Stephen passes on the knowledge that Yagiello had found a woman in his bed after he came back from playing cards in the gun room with the Catalan officers all night. And this woman is somebody that Yagiello does not want to have for company on the voyage. And he and Stephen couldn't discuss it on deck with everybody listening in as they swabbed. So they'd gone up to the top. And Jack decides this conversation is going to have to take place on deck. So he says to the hands, rig a whip, you know, rig a, uh, rig a rope that will allow us to lower Stephen and especially Yagiello down. And he assures Yagiello. And I think this is a fairly routine thing for Jack in some ways. He'll have the woman put ashore. Right. But it, it's interesting. Yagiello's attitude to the woman is a, is a bit complex and he seems embarrassed by the whole thing. Yeah, I, I, it's fascinating. Yeah, he's blushing because Jack tells him he's got to go in there, tell the woman she's got to leave. And and Yagiello blushing says, "No, no, it'd be so unkind. There'd be so many tears." And Yagiello turns to Pellworm, the pilot, who speaks Swedish. Mm-hmm. And Pellworm tells Jack that he knows the woman. As a matter of fact, anybody who's been to the theater in Port there knows her. She's you know she's kind of a famous actress. She's also known as the gentleman's relish, and is as he says, the governor's quote private piece unquote a singing harlot of tremendous price in the words of the poet pellworm says <laughs> but he says that he will if jack you know wants it he'll go speak to her like a dutch uncle you know that firm but benevolent advice and mike this is yet another gold mine of literary reference right because i mean in in the words of the poet suggest that this is a tag from somebody very very well known but this line Singing Harlot of Tremendous Price is taken from a poem by George Crabbe. And Mike, I'd, I'd never heard of George Crabbe. Had you heard of Crabbe? I, I had not. I was oh. amazed to find the, out who George Crabbe was and that he was, in fact, a contemporary of the time and famous. Yeah, and highly regarded by people, including Byron and, and Samuel Johnson and a bunch of other people, um, wrote the uh, poem that became the libretto for Benjamin Britten's opera, Peter Grimes. And there you go. In this long, long, long verse poem in rhyming couplets, we've got this little tag about a singing harlot of tremendous price. So, and to, and to add the boot for all of us, he was a surgeon, a clergyman, yeah. a poet, and a natural philosopher, George Crabbe. Yeah, right. Oh, yeah, certainly harkens back to all of our best friends here in the canon. Oh, it does indeed. Very, very cool stuff. Very cool just to lift a little tiny corner of the illusions that Patrick O'Brien puts in there and you discover all this great stuff lying underneath. For sure. Well, 
even though she's a singing harlot of tremendous price, she hollers all the way <laughs> sure. And, and um, Yagello and, and, and Pellworm translate, you know, her hollering, lions as hot as a goat, heart as cold as a stone. This is Ian from the future. Of course, Mike doesn't mean lions, he means loins. And Yagiello protests that she knows nothing about his loins, has never seen them. He never invited her, begged her to go away. And but this is starting to become Yagiello's signature move when it comes to women. He has no idea why they're paying attention to him, what he's supposed to do apart from be a friend. And he says he never invited her. He's begging her to go away. Stephen looks at the pair of them. He looks at Jack and he looks at Yag Yellow, who have both chickened out of right. sending this woman away. And he's really calling out their behavior. He says, poltroons, scrubs. And he notes that there are other men looking ashamed and concerned. And I think Stephen's upset with the dishonesty of it, of not having the moral courage to say, okay, Mrs. Relish, you're not required here. We're going to send you ashore in a boat now. And that kind of dishonesty that sort of moral cowardice doesn't sit well with him at all and maybe maybe that's a reflection on how he thinks his relationship with diana could be if it was honest and truthful and brave nice nice insight i like that well jack continues to be gobsmacked shall i say about young yellow he just doesn't get it at breakfast he's talking to Stephen, and he said that that whilst Jack and Stephen were with the Admiral. Yagello had gone on shore, and a half hour after he got back, three women came out in a boat, came out to the ship. Two of them were the Swedish Admiral's daughter, and the third, the gentleman's relish, who Jack says kills at a mile. And, and, and Jack says, I cannot for the life of me understand what they see in him. He is a good fellow, to be sure, but he's only a boy. I doubt he shaves once a week, if that. And indeed, he's more like a girl than anything else. Now, Stephen notes that the same thing applied to Orpheus, you know, <laughs> you know more, more like a girl, a young boy, but it didn't stop women from tearing him limb to limb. Yeah. And, you know, this is being held up for Jack to puzzle over, and it's Jack who needs, I think, in the eye of the author, to readjust his perspective about relationships between men and women and to realize that Jack himself hasn't got much insight into what women like about men. Because Yeah. Yes, Jack's, Jack's still not in good shape with his with his marriage and his relationships. Anyhow, they're still with the convoy. The convoy sailed that evening, and off they go in this big disorderly group. Ariel and the transport ships are leading the way. We managed to get past the threat of Danish gunboats. We've gone through a different route to get past the islands of Denmark this time, not through the sound. Um, but they still managed to avoid the Danish gunboats because the wind is foul for the Danish gunboats. One of the Danes tried to slip into the convoy, but a sloop of war chased it. And there were just three merchantmen who collided with each other. So compared to how it could have been shepherding a big lumpy convoy through hazardous waters, actually, things have gone okay. Now, Mr. Pellworm has begun to say more and more often that he suspects that bad weather is waiting for them. I think earlier on he had said that the glass was dropping and now he's getting back into it again, assuring Jack that they're going to have a blow yet. 
Pellworm says, mark my words, sir, mark my words. We shall have our blow yet. And I only hope we may have weathered the score before it starts. Um, the score is now known, these days known as Skagen. It's the pointy bit at the top of Denmark. I only hope we may have weathered the score before it starts. You cannot set sail on a Friday, the 13th of the month, with a woman on board into the bargain without you have a blow. I am not in the least superstitious. I leave crows and pies and crossing my path and cards and tea leaves and such to Mrs. Pellworm. But it stands to reason that what seamen have found to be the case ever since the memory of man saith not to the contrary must have something in it. There's no smoke without a fire. Besides, he says, justifying himself, besides the glass is dropping yet, and even if it were not, a Friday is always a Friday. Now, remember, Mike, Jack had earlier on said, I'm done with omens. Right, right. <laughs> Sorry. So he stands up to Pellworm just a little. I think he's a bit irritated with Pellworm presuming above his station and a little bit irritated with all of these superstitions being flashed out. Jack says, maybe, sir, but maybe a good many of these omens are all cry and no wolf. Yeah, that's that's a grade two Aubreyism, I think. All cry and no wolf. Right. Pellworm says, is it, is, it, is it not wool, sir? Extending the Aubreyism. Jack says, come, come, who would cry wool too often? What would be the point of crying wool? No, no, your omens keep threatening disaster. They did so before Grimsholm, and you see what happened. All cry with no wolf at the end of it. I have done with omens, he repeats himself, but nonetheless grasping a belaying pin. Right. Your falling glass, however, is another kettle of fish. Your glass is scientific. Pellworm's face took on a dogged expression, and he said, as you please, sir. But there are more things in heaven and earth, Captain Aubrey, than you philosophers dream of. Philosophers, Mr. Pellworm? Oh, sir, that was only poetry. I meant no disrespect. Oh, Mike, there's a lot going on there. <laughs> right, right. So all of this, omens that keep coming up, omens, omens, omens. And sure enough, this, this conversation breaks off because the Ariel's master shows up and says, He's accidentally broken the ship's chronometer, the timepiece. He says it had the unluckiest fall. Ah, so oh. we're going, uh, oh, what's what's going on here? You know, all these omens foreshadowing. Now we've got no chronometer. Uh, but Jack remembers that Stephen has this great watch. And, and we all remember he took it off the dead French agent in Fortune War and asked Stephen if he can borrow it. And, and we're reminded here that that Stephen, of course, is no real actual sailor. Jack has to provide him with a full explanation about why he wants his watch. And you, you should do this justice. <laughs> I love this. Oh, great. And, and by the way, before we move off the omens, I want to point out that Pellworm is the, the, the crack about more things on heaven and earth than in your philosophers. That's a, that's a reference to Hamlet. Oh yes, we're, we're only a couple of days, I think, from Elsinore, and I'm pretty sure that Hamlet didn't end well for most. No, people. good, good point. Well, well spotted. So Stephen gets treated to a really nice lecture. To he gets treated to astro navigation one hundred and one, and Stephen's a little bit teasingly, but also hiding his ignorance behind the tease. I think saying, oh, I'd, "I'd assumed that all of this kind of worship of chronometers and sextants was just a bit of mumbo jumbo on behalf." of mariners generally. So Stephen says the machine, he means the chronometer. The machine is used for finding out the latitude, I believe. And Jack very gently sets him right. He's exactly wrong. He says, to tell you the truth, Stephen, most people rely on the sextant for their latitude. The timekeeper is for the other thing, 
east and west, you know, which is longitude. Now, Stephen says, I'm no great navigator, although I have often wondered how you mariners found your way about the dark wastes of the ocean. And he goes on to make these jokes about Greenwich and says that whereas a poor man can fix his position only with regard to north and south, his wealthy brother is secure to left and right as well. There is a logic in this, he says, although it escapes me just as the use of the timepiece escapes me with its peevish insistence upon accuracy for what is, a, after all, a most debatable concept. So, Jack very obligingly fights through this wave of sarcasm and and, and inquisition and gives Stephen the lecture that says they need to know the time so that they can compare the time of their local noon with the time of noon as measured by their chronometer because that gives them their longitude from Greenwich. And Mike, th- this was a challenge relatively recently solved for long-distance navigators in the 18th century using chronometers to find longitude had become commonplace as accurate chronometers came along. And we can all find out the story of Harrison. If you read the great book, Longitude by David Sobel, if you go to the Greenwich Maritime Museum, you can see the the Harrison chronometers that were the prototypes for really accurate naval chronometers. This revolutionized people's ability to know where they were, not only, as Stephen says, north and south, but also east-west. And Jack and Stephen and the Ariel have got a hazardous voyage to undertake from east to west in potentially contrary weather. So this is a topic, Mike, that I think is going to come up in the near future. Well, yeah, and Stephen even you know says back to Jack, once he kind of gives in on all this, he says, well, you know, but my watch loses a minute a day, which could cause us to be off by 20 miles in determining mm. our position. So right, if there's dirty weather, if the watch is not right, if you can't get a reading, hmm, yeah, put a pin in it. Yeah, so dropping the chronometer is the equivalent of losing the batteries for the GPS. <laughs> nice, well put, yes. So the promised blow, the blow foretold in such gloomy tones by Pellworm, um, starts off and the pilot is chiding Jack a little bit for wanting to go ahead instead of sheltering. And Jack's, I think, still seeing the pilot as a bearer of bad luck and wants his earlier prediction to be right. And luck is being played out in the background in a few ways in this chapter, I think, Mike. While this is going on, Stephen wins all of Yagiello's money playing cards, 17 shillings and fourpence, which is quite a lot. And Yagiello suspects that it's going to be days till they see land. And Stephen says, well, it could be next year because we're not out of a sleeve. We have to weather the score. We've got more wind coming. And then we've got to get all the way across the North Sea. Stephen does his own little bit of education, helping Yagiello understand the perils of a lee shore and the, the reason why Jack and the other sailors are so preoccupied with the wind. Um, good news, though. At breakfast, Jack says to Stephen that we've weathered the score. We had five miles to spare, but we made it around the score. And Stephen is able to associate this, I think, with still feeling sleepy and feeling good because he's just emerged from his first erotic dream since being back with Diana. So maybe that has some significance for us. Hmm. Jack says the rest of the convoy, with the exception of the transport ships, had had run you know, kind of in, into land to stay away from the storm. Uh, but they're still moving on. And then Stephen observes to himself how he was deliberately trying last night to worry Yagiello. All this extensive discussion about a lee shore and how bad they were. And, and Stephen said he was trying to take away from the super abundant cheerfulness of Yagiello and realizes it's because he envies 
Yagiello as, as Stephen Muses. You know, he, Stephen, had never been pursued by a gentleman's relish at any time in his life. And, and Jack, of course, says that he certainly cannot see what women see in Yagiello. So we've got this, this whole thing that keeps coming up. You know, Stephen thinking about Yagiello now, Jack about Yagiello. And, and, and I think Ian, you've, you've mentioned that sometimes Yagiello seems to wonder what women I see in him. I don't know. And we certainly wonder what, if anything, Yagiello sees in women. We've had the, the one conversation about Amazons uh, and equal relationships. So, you know, fascinating. Yeah. He's almost a platonic ideal of a man as, as imagined by other men. Right. Maybe that's a bit deep. <laughs> Well, never mind Greek philosophy, um, natural philosophy and science is going to take hold because they can't escape the fact that the glass is dropping. The convoy hits rough weather. And as well as making life uncomfortable, that means that they can't take observations. So sextant observations for their latitude are out. Other forms of observation to to support their navigation are out. They can't see the sky. They run the lead continuously making soundings, asking themselves, how deep is the water under the keel? What's the ground like on the ocean floor under the keel? And the master and the pilot and Jack can't agree on what these sea floor samples mean. So Jack's almost, almost typical guy, almost stops for fishing boats to ask for directions, but he's too much of a guy to do that. And they do nonetheless make it across the North Sea. They make it to Deal, so the southeast corner of England, near to Dover, near to the Downs, where we've had so much action in these stories in the past. And they drop off Mr. Pellworm, whose job is as a North Sea pilot. And Pellworm decides to have one last go at mournfully predicting the future to Jack. He warns him that the west wind is coming and recites this really ominous poetry about the forces of nature. And Jack's really upset about Pellworm trying to lord it over the captain with his predictions of dire things to come. He's worried that it's going to upset the crew. Mm. And meanwhile, as a little little glint of what else is going on in the background of Jack's story, as they sail past the southern coast of England, Jack thinks he sees the flash of light that's a reflection from the observatory dome on his home at Ashgrove Cottage as they go past Portsmouth. But he says it's, it's, he feels farther away from home than he did when he was in Australia. Wow. In the morning, sure enough, they hit three black squalls in a row. They have another headland to weather. And, and Yagello, as a cavalryman, decides that horses make much better transportation than ships. This whole lee shore problem. Horses don't have a lee shore problem here. Uh, Jack, you know, having seen that observatory, is running through his head all of these problems at home. Uh, O'Brien writes Amanda Smith, his legal complications, self-reproach, the potential ruin of his heart, the probable shipwreck of his fortune. And he goes on and on. Uh, and Jack, you know, with the bad weather, with the inability to make an observation, decides to, you know, he says, as Stephen would say, festino lento, make haste slowly as they go through another hard night of rain and wind, rain the next day, no observations and, and the dead reckoning uh, and where they think the ships are it's off by like 40 miles now. And yeah. it, the rain continues to the point where even Yagiello, O'Brien tells us, sank into a dismal tuper. <sighs> and we've got another one of these really dark moments in the story, Mike, where you sort of cast around thinking, oh, geez, is, is it going to keep getting grim? Something great comes out of the darkness. It's another British ship, HMS Jason, and a French two-decker that the Jason's chasing. The French ship is running for Brest, 
and the Jason's two miles back with all canvas spread. And Mike, I'm looking in my mind's eye here at Tom Horn's cannonade.net website. Yes. And we have a pretty good idea that these ships picked each other up somewhere off the southwest coast of England, maybe somewhere between Plymouth and Portsmouth, because Jack's gone past Ashgrove Cottage because we're probably somewhere off Dorset. And with a west wind brewing, the Jason is chasing the Meduse southeast towards Brest. So Jack sees this chase underway, not knowing that Ariel was the post ship the Jason's captain orders Jack to close the Jason, thinking that the Jason's captain is senior. In fact, Jack has to weigh up things here. Am, am, am I going to take command? Am I going to uh, ignore the presumptive order from the Jason and do my own thing? Am I going to keep going with the transports towards Santander? But this is Jack Aubrey, and he weighs things up pretty quickly, and he realizes that there's a chance here for him to have a decisive role in the action, that actually the transports are going to be okay now that they're this far down the channel and with the west wind blowing, it's time for them to head south. And that he has the ability to make a difference to the action that the Jason is trying to pursue with the Meduse. So they wear ship, they set sail, he orders the Jason onto a new course by signing the letter alphabetically Aubrey so that he establishes precedence for himself over the captain of the Jason, sent up his favourite signal, which is a false signal saying enemy in sight, and off he goes chasing the Frenchman to the south. He manages to get Jason's position and chronometer reading, which is maybe going to be enough to help him secure his navigation. And he just notices for a moment how far off Stephen's watch had been. And off he drives, chasing this three-decker, the the 74-gun Frenchman. Yeah, and I I love when when Jack makes the decision, orders him to wear ship, how the crew, the quarterdeck, is all delighted. Oh my gosh, we're with Jack Aubrey. We're going into action. You know, and Jack says some things like, you know, when they recognize that it's the Meduse, he says, ah, let us hope we may trim her locks with Jason's help. <laughs> and Jack's attitude changes too. O'Brien says, even if it had been remembered, nothing on land had the least importance. So all these things that have been dogging him, they're completely out of his mind as he moves into action here. But yeah. he's still... You know, it's still Jack Aubrey. He's smart. He's a strategic captain. He's got a lot of experience, and he realizes the danger of his presence, course. You know, yeah. his hit and run delaying action is going to bring them well into the range of Medusa's 840-pound broadside against the 265 pounds of his stumpy carronades. And, and if it weren't for the present squall, you know, if yeah. Medusa could open her lower gun ports, she would sink the aerial at a mile before aerial was even in range to fire once. So speed and maneuvers are essential. And even with that, Jack thinks, you know, uh, many of them may not live through it. You're right. And seamanship, I think, as well as maneuvers, because after the bosun has managed to complete Jack's favorite trick of light horses to the mastheads, they raise even more sail. And it says aerial took on a greater heel so that with the third filling of the, the filling of the third sail, her deck was at the slope of a moderately high pitched roof while her larboard cathead, that's where you hang the anchor out of the port side bows of the ship. The larboard cathead and much of the lee rail vanished under a smother of white foam. They were doing 11 knots and two fathoms. And even if we can't imagine what 11 knots looks like, that, that's a number that normally generates excited comment from the midshipmen who are streaming the log. So 
She's raised more sail. They heel down another seven degrees and Yagiello comes on deck. Bit of comic relief from Yagiello. He says, how strangely that the floor is sloping. I can hardly sit in my chair. What do you suppose that they're doing? And Stephen carries on this joking dialogue with Yagiello. He says, I cannot tell. It is a melancholy reflection that the passenger is a mere helpless, unhelpful parcel when the tempest roars. Does not the captain seek your advice, sir? Asks Yagiello. Mm, not always, said Steve. With the, you know, they're, they're down there below with all this sloping going on, but they're invited to come up on deck and witness the chase and the coming battle. And, and Stephen, you know, as has happened before, he really gets into it. Sure, this is speed itself, cried Stephen, the foam flying past his face, the racing exhilaration of, he'd been about to say, of Icarus before his fall, but he checked himself, <laughs> preferring a swooping elegance, a, an appearance of extreme danger, just averted, a falcon's flight, so it is. Mm. Ooh, even Stephen is avoiding references that sound like they might be uh, calling down omens. So Jack tells them that this is Pellworm's blow. This is the much-promised westerly, and this is going to be a big storm, but their plan is to catch the chase, haul their wind, cross her stem, so cut across the front, of the Medus, rake her, wear round, rake her again, and then fly. So they've got to get ahead of the ship, cut across her bows, two broadsides, and then away again, hopefully before the Medus can do any really mortal damage to the aerial. They were counting on being twice as nimble and counting on being able to fire twice as fast, which sounds like the kind of challenge that Jack Aubrey ought to be up for. And First of all, the Medus bore up, trying to pass under the aerial stern, trying to manoeuvre around behind her. But Jack hauled his wind and they converged together. They have to sustain at least one round of fire from the Medus. The Medus fired. It flew too high. The aerial fired in return and one of the Medus's sails ripped to pieces. Now, the Medus has got two rows of ports. Her lower ports opened on the uproll and both ships fired simultaneously. The aerial lost her fore topmast and her foreyard parted. So she has to spin around now because the balance of the wind in the rigging is going to make the aerial swing head to wind. In the chaos, Jack and some quick-witted men went over to fire the larboard guns and that caused damage aboard the Meduse, shattering her spanker boom, blasting holes in her main course. Meduse fired her after guns as aerial ran a mile away, moving quickly, shattering the boats on the beams. So, Mike, just, just about at acceptable cost... Jack has managed to do this little dance around the Medus. He's managed to get in a couple of broadsides. He's caused some damage to the fabric of the ship and some damage to the rigging. So now it's the Jason's turn as the Jason comes hurtling down in the Medusa's wake with her longer range broadside and her heavier weight of metal. Right. Yeah, he's, yeah, Jack's done exactly what he wanted to do. He needs to slow the Medusa up long enough for the Jason to be able to catch her and bring her to action. Ariel makes some repairs, and Jack is delighted to come away with no killed or wounded, no shots in his hull. They they sail after the Medusa and the Jason, hoping to join back in the action, or at least to help bring any other ship that might be within sight using blue lights and rockets and gunfires, in spite of this incredible blow that Pellworm had predicted. And, and they follow the ships until... Uh, the sounds of battle and all the lights are swallowed up in what O'Brien tells us is this pelting horizontal rain driven by a hollow, a howling wind. So the storm blows fiercely all night and, and Jack finally just turns in hoping that they'll catch sight of the Jason in the morning. 
Instead, Jack was woken up by Hyde shaking him and shouting, break us under the lee, sir. There was a vast shoal of rocks, two cables lengths away. That's a couple of hundred yards away. With injured sails, with no sails on the foremast, not to speak of, he couldn't tack, but there was room to wear to go around in three quarters of a circle. They wear, they barely make it, and they proceed to try and figure out where they are. It turns out that his navigation had let him down. His poor chronometer information had meant that he was exposed. He was 50 miles north of his true position and far farther to the east, either Ushant or the French mainland. And as he tries to figure out where he is, he's aware that there are breakers dead ahead. He's got to find a gap in the reefs, drop anchor and assess his position. So he wants to make sure that the men get fed a hot meal. He's right within the coast of France. This is a situation that's probably not going to end well. They find themselves in a place called Gripes Bay. And Mike, this is a real place. It's in the rocky strewn waters around the port of Brest. We're talking about the northwest corner of France. We're talking about Brittany, where the coast is all rocks and inlets. And they're right in with this place called Gripes Bay. There's a French battery that will probably start as soon as the uh, soldiers wake up. Around the jetty, there was another fort. If they could get around this headland called Gripes Point, they would be out of range of the batteries. And south of them, there's a bay called Douanane Bay. And the gale might blow itself out while they're in shelter there. So this is a really, really narrow chance, a really slim chance that they can escape. They're going to have to find a way through the reef gap with the wind dead on shore and the tide running in. That's going to be a challenge. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and they've lost their pilot. But luckily, Jack uh, had fished these waters when he was on breast blockade duty earlier yeah. in his career. So he, he's starting to get a little bit of a feel for where he is and recognizes it. And they cut the anchor because they're being fired upon. But still, even with the fire, they've got to move slowly, you know, using the leadsman all the way to maneuver around the rock and the reefs. Um, they hit Mark three, they crash into some rocks, but they keep running and, and they see a piece of their false keel floating behind them in mm. their way here. Not so no, they t- to, to get into the bay, they'd have to run really right into the thatcher. You know, it sounds like almost just a wall of rock and then club hauler, which is a perilous maneuver at the best of times. Ian, I'm, I'm sitting here as a lover going club hauler. What is that? Luckily, you know, O'Brien <laughs> gives Stephen the job of explaining it to Yagiello, but I know you're going to do much better than I would. <laughs> explaining. Oh, I don't know about that. Well, it's it basically sacrificing an anchor and these, Big ships would carry two, three, four anchors, sacrificing an anchor. So they're going to drop the anchor in one moment to stop the ship's motion. That'll swing the ship round head to wind. And then with momentum on the ship as it swings around, they cut the cable. The ship pays off on the opposite tack. So rather than just relying on the rudder and the sails to get the ship through the eye of the wind, which would be almost impossible in these conditions, they're going to use dropping an anchor and then sacrificing the anchor to do a maneuver a little bit like um, somebody on a skateboard reaching out and grabbing a lamppost and swinging around the lamppost to change direction. And ah. if, you're, if your timing's good, you look like a genius. <laughs> if your timing's bad, you fall flat on your backside. Right. Well, and, and as O'Brien describes this one to us, you know, they got the men with axes standing by. You know, he tells us it's got to be a split second move at exactly the right time. If they make a mistake, they bam, they drive right onto this rock. 
Um, everybody looks grave. Um, Jack is very grateful that nobody has broken into the spirit room. You know, yeah. the usual sort of thing when we're in this this precarious a situation. You know, and and as as they go through here, they get out of the shelter of the offshore reef, and so they've got now the full force of the sea and the gale. Water's pounding up the face of the thatcher. And and they're coming towards it very fast. They're you know they're closing the thatcher to start to initiate this maneuver here. And this is really immediate writing. We said earlier on that one of Patrick O'Brien's tricks for helping us to feel tense and and joining the anxiety is to take us away from the action and feel all that uncertainty. But now, Mike, he's taking us right up into close up. The rock is very close. It says the leadsman says there's a proper depth. Hear him. Luff, cried Jack, his eyes fixed on this rock, the thatcher and the drifting kelp. Up stational sheets, and after an unbearable five seconds, let go the anchor. All at once, her bowsprit was pointing straight into the roaring gale, though the heavy seas tried to, for- tried to force her head to leeward. So he's just about making it. He's managing to get the boat headed into the eye of the wind. Up, main tack, haul off all, cut. The axe flashed down on the cable. She was almost around. So the skateboarder has reached out his arm, grabbed hold of the lamppost, and is just about to start making the turn. Already she had a prodigious sternway moving backwards straight towards the thatcher. Fetch a cast far aft, cried Jack to the leadsman, leaning out over the quarter rail to judge the last possible moment, the greatest possible impetus for the full starboard helm that would bring her right round. The leadsman turned swung with all his might. The lead line caught the bellying ensign whip. The lead shot inboard and struck Jack down on the deck. And Mike, this is type type one disaster, okay? Jack Aubrey gets hit on the head by flying debris at a critical moment in the story, but we're not done with disaster yet. This lead struck Jack down on their deck. On his hands and knees, through the crash of the blow and the roar of the sea, he heard Hyde's voice at an infinite distance shout, Larboard, or I mean starboard. And then all-embracing thunder as the aerial struck the Thatcher full on, beating her rudder and staving in much of her stern. He was on his feet, a momentary glimpse of Hyde's appalled deathly face, and he saw the ship broadside onto the sea. Brail up, clew up the mizzen and main, foresail sheets aft, he cried. Grinding and grinding again over the rock, the good aerial brought her head right before the wind, and he drove her over the narrowest part of the inner reef with what steering the foresail alone would provide. And here he's resigned to the fact that he's going ashore. He's trying to get ashore quickly while the ship's all in one piece so that there's a chance that men can get off the ship before she's pounded into into a ruin. He was still at a great distance, very far removed, but all his mind that was clear felt with the ship. And after the seventh great shattering strike, he knew her back was broken amidships. Yet with spring tide near its height, she did not hold fast, but drove on and on through the breakers that reared up to her tops. So, Mike, um, just before we carry on and kind of conclude this this disaster, there's there's some things that we've seen before here. Jack getting hit on the head, as we mentioned before, that happened in Post Captain during the uh, cutting out of the Fanchula. It happened during the Vaxam Height chase in the uh, Southern Atlantic. And the foreboding that we had earlier on of Hyde's confusion in stressful moments between left and right seems right. to have helped, seems to have contributed to the disaster as well. Yeah. 
I I do love how Jack, who's just, you know, almost knocked out by this lead, still he's kind of, you know, while he's not necessarily in touch with everything else, he can bark some orders, he can feel the ship, and he's feeling what she's capable of in the midst of all this, which is kind of amazing, but so very much like Jack. So, you know, O'Brien tells us that she she carries on into the calmed water beyond the reef, and she swam, but not for long. Jack orders the guns overboard. He's trying to stay afloat so he can run her ashore. As the wind and sea and tide heave her towards the mouth of the river, he told the officers to fetch their commissions. He told Stephen to have the colonel, Delestrat, put on a Marine's uniform and pass for a private. He threw his lead-covered signal book, his dispatches, his private papers, and his sword overboard. And then O'Brien closes saying for some reason he was perfectly confident that she would not go to pieces, but would bring them to land, and she behaved beautifully to the last. A final heave on the starboard sheet brought her wallowing up against the jetty at the height of the tide, with the water gurgling at her hatches. All they had to do was to step over the rail to the waiting company of soldiers and the small, silent crowd. Wow. Whew. What an ending. Yeah. And at the risk of spoiling the atmosphere here, Mike, this, I think, has, has echoes of another journey that ended with the vehicle just about in one piece as it finally landed. Right. right. I immediately thought of Ron, you know, Ron Weasley and Harry Potter in their flying Ford Anglia, Losing power, dropping into the Whomping Willow in, in Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. So yeah. perhaps not a broad overlap of our readership. I don't know, listenership. But uh, well, You tell us, guys. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Anybody see this? But, but I remember thinking to myself, as this happens, and I'm reading this, and they're into the crowd, you know, this company of soldiers, these people who were so used to English boats running ashore and, and, and putting them under arms here. You know, who saw this coming? You know, yes, as you said, we had omens, we had left and right. But um, my gosh, you know, cap, you know, in France now here, you know, no ship, prisoners. Mm-hmm. Stephen, you know, we talked about being in the mouth of the lion when he went to talk to the Institute. Yeah. Wow. Where are we? Well, have we had yet another inciting event? Is, is there going to be a whole new episode of action ashore in France? Are they going to survive the attentions of the French army and who knows, maybe the French intelligence service. Right. Where's all this capture going to lead us? And what's going on with Diana? And can Jack go any further in redeeming himself? Is there anything else that Jack can do to help put matters to rights? Where is it all going to end up? Now, I guess we're just going to have to wait. What do you say, Ian, next week to a little bit more Patrick O'Brien? Oh, Mike, with all my heart.
<laughs> well, there's Mosey with a peaceful welcome there too. Thank you, Mo. 